0: worship team, thank you all for joining us this morning as we gather to worship God. If you would please turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 8, that's page 730 in the church Bibles and the chairs in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, uh, you are welcome to take uh, the Bible and the chair backs in front of you as a gift from us. We want you to have God's Word in your hand that you might know Him better. Who is God? What is he like? In our broader society, there are a lot of different pictures of God. Some people imagine God to be sort of like a cosmic grandfather figure who just kind of gives you whatever you want and doesn't really care what you do. Just kind of turns a blind eye. Others see God as a malevolent, hanging judge sort of a God who's just waiting for us to mess up. Before he'll jump on us, maybe strike us dead with a lightning bolt or with the plague. Are these pictures right? Who is God? What is he really like? Well, in the book of Micah, we are being shown who the one true God truly is. And if you've been with us the past few weeks, or if you haven't, if you read through Micah 1 through 3, you'll see that God is a good God. And specifically, that His goodness is shown through His justice. He does not ignore evil. He does not ignore sin. Rather, He takes sin seriously. And so, through the prophet Micah, almost 3,000 years ago, God was confronting His own people over their sin. Over the ways that they were failing to love Him through idolatrous worship. Over the ways they were, rather than loving each other, exploiting each other. In Micah's day, within the people of God, the powerful were taking advantage of the weak. The rich were taking advantage of the poor. And everyone was corrupt. We saw last week that God, through the prophet Micah, said that everyone was on the take. The political leadership, the judicial leadership, even the religious leadership. And so God had confronted His people in His good justice and said, I'm not going to ignore this anymore. You think that we're okay. You think I'll give you a blank check to live however you want. But guess what? The check's coming due. I'm going to come in judgment and in justice out of my good character. And you are going to go through some hard times, he told them. But is that all God is? Is God just good because of his justice? He's certainly good because of his justice. But he's also good in that he shows mercy to his people. In our passage this morning, that is the main focus. We've gone through three chapters of pretty dark and seemingly dire warnings of judgment that was coming. Now in Micah 4, we're going to see that God gives a bright ray of hope to his people. Hope that there is great future glory ahead for them despite the immediate judgment that is coming. And so God shows his people that a bright future is ahead for them. But that's not ultimately the main point. The main point isn't that there is a bright future. The main point is that God is giving them this bright future despite their sin, despite their undeservingness, because though they don't deserve it, though they've been unfaithful, God is still faithful and he is still merciful. So let us stand if we're able for the reading of God's word and let us hear these words of bright future hope that ultimately reveal God's loving mercy towards his people. God, through the prophet Micah, said this, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it, and many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall decide for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation; neither shall there be, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, if you've been with us, as I said, the last few weeks, you would know that what we just read is, seems like worlds away from what we've been reading the last couple of weeks. In Micah 1-3, through 3, God, through the prophet Micah, confronted his people. He said, I'm going to come and I'm going to bring judgment on you because of your evil. Your evil towards me, your evil towards one another. I'm going to come and I'm going to lay waste to everything that you've built, God had said. He said, you've built up the capital city, Jerusalem, into a place of power and prestige and wealth, but you've built it all on blood. It's all corrupt. And so because of you, Zion, Jerusalem, shall be plowed as a field. It's going to be leveled to the ground, all that you've built. He knew that everyone in the leadership of that day were corrupt, And that they were corrupt in part because they were presuming on God's grace. They said, God is the God of Israel. We're His people. And that means we can do whatever we want. We have God's temple among us on the mountain of Jerusalem. And so God will always be with us. No one will be able to do anything to us because God will always come through for us. But in Micah 3.12, the verse that immediately precedes our passage this morning, it said not even the temple would be spared. Because of you, Zion, the capital city, shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. And the mountain of the house, that is the mountain of the temple, will become a wooded height. God said, the, I'm not going to overlook your evil anymore. Judgment is coming. Everything you built is going to come crashing down. And the temple that you think secures your place with me and secures your whole system of injustice, that's going to... And so God's people, if they were listening to Micah, were probably pretty worried. If what Micah says comes true, judgment is coming from God, and God's temple even is going to be destroyed. And since that's the symbol of God's presence with us, does this mean God is done with us forever? That would have been the question. Is God just wiping his hands of us, casting us off for always? The answer that God gives in verse 4 is that no yes judgment was coming but he was not casting off his people forever despite their unworthiness despite their sin and instead he had a glorious future ahead for them and so having just said that Jerusalem and Zion which were built on a mountain were going to be laid low having just said that the mountain of the house would become a wooded height that's the short-term result he then says in chapter 4 it shall come to pass in the latter days that restoration will happen. The mountain of the house of the Lord that in the short term is going to be a wooded height will be established as the highest of the mountains and it shall be lifted up above the hills. So he's saying in the short term, you're going to be laid low because of your sin. So judgment's coming. But on the other side of judgment, I will bring restoration. I will show grace. I will take you who have been laid low because of your sin and I will lift you back up. The mountain of Jerusalem that's going to be defeated and demolished and will be a source of despair and shame for you, it will become the center, God says, in latter days, of my good rule of my glory throughout all the earth. There's going to be a reversal of fortunes for you. Yes, it's going to get bad, but it will get better. And so he goes on to describe this beautiful future that they have, even in spite of the terrible judgment that's coming on them. And he describes how peoples, that is the nations of the earth, will flow to this exalted Jerusalem. And many nations shall come. Now this is again a reversal of fortunes. How were they going to be destroyed in the short term? The nations were going to come, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and they were going to lay waste to them. They were going to mock them. They were going to take them off into exile. They would have been the laughing stock of the world stage. But in these latter days, God says, they will no longer be the laughing stock of all the nations. They will no longer be subjugated by these enemy nations. They'll be lifted up and the nations will come to them. And what's more, the nations through God's reign and rule in this future day in Jerusalem will come to know God's ways. And they will know that the God who is in Jerusalem is the God of his people. Why will the nations come, verse 2? They will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord. Now, the Lord here is Yahweh. That's why it's in all caps. It's the covenant name of God for his people. To the house of the God of Jacob. So who is in Jerusalem? God. Who do the nation, Who will the nations know God to be? The God of Jacob, the covenant God. And so what's being said here is that God will be in Jerusalem, but not just God, God will be with His people. And He'll be known as the God of His people, and Jerusalem will be known as the centerpiece of where God's people dwell with God. So is God casting them off forever, even in spite of this terrible judgment that's coming? No. He's saying there's still a future for us, even though you've blown it. Even though you defied me again and again and again, even though you're exploiting one another, I will still be your God, even though you absolutely do not deserve it. He goes on to say how Jerusalem will be this exalted place through which all the nations will know God's ways. They say, let us go there so he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law or the teaching and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So Jerusalem will be the center of God's ways going out to all the nations. Now again, this was something that God's people were supposed to be doing in the Old Testament. They were supposed to be God's representatives to the whole world. They were supposed to live righteous lives before God and with one another and to be a shining example. And yet rather than obeying God, they disobeyed Him. Rather than loving each other, they were examples not of righteousness, but of evil. But in the end, God says, You won't be known for disobedience. You won't be known for injustice. You won't be known for rebellion. In the end, Jerusalem will be known as the place where God's ways are known, where God's ways are practiced, where the nations can come and know God. And so God's saying, you've blown it, but I'm still going to salvage what I was doing through you. I am going to use my people to bring myself glory in the world. And so from Jerusalem, God would bring perfect peace on the international stage. We're told that from Jerusalem, God will judge between many peoples. So He is going to be the ultimate power on earth in that day. He will bring international peace by deciding disputes for strong nations far away. Jerusalem will not just be a regional power. God from Jerusalem will decide disputes for nations far away, all over the world. God will not just sort of decide disputes for the weak nations that can't hold their own. He will decide for strong nations far away. And the result will be peace on earth. We're told that as a result of God ruling from Jerusalem, nations will get rid of their defense budgets. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. No longer will they need to fight one another because God will be ruling in perfect peace. And so they will take their war spending and turn it into financial investment in their own land. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. No more need for West Point. No more need for Annapolis. No more need to be training new soldiers because there will be peace. God will rule in justice from Jerusalem. And not only will there be international justice, God says, there will also be domestic justice. And that's really important because if we remember back two weeks ago to Micah 2, what was one of the main ways that God's people were sinning against him? The powerful were taking advantage of the weak. The rich were. Were exploiting the poor. They were stealing their land. They were dispossessing widows of their houses. They were abusing those who were weak. And so those who were weak were always in constant worry: Will the corrupt judge take my home? Will the rich land baron send his send his cronies to kick me out and steal my land? But in the day when God rules in justice from Jerusalem, they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. No longer will the powerful exploit the weak. No longer will the rich dispossess the poor. God will reign in justice, and there will be no injustice in that day, despite the rampant injustice among the people of God in Micah's day. And if all that weren't good enough, we read in verse 5 that God will be with His people forever, and they will be His people forever. Remember, what's, what are they worried about when God says, I'm going to take out the temple? They're worried that God's saying, I'm just done with you. We no longer have a relationship. You will no longer be my people. I will no longer be your God. But what's said in verse 5 is that all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Not just until judgment comes. Not just if we're really, really good and, and keep ourselves in God's good grace. God's people will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. And so we enter into this beautiful picture where God himself speaks in verses 6-7 through where he speaks of his mercy. See, all of this, this bright future hope, the main point is not so much that there's a really bright future ahead. That's not the main point. It's important. It's not the main point. The main point is that this future is coming for God's people despite them, despite their sin. Despite their unworthiness, despite their rebellion, that God, in spite of everything they've done and everything he sees, is not wiping his hands clean of them. That he still brings not just, he doesn't just like sort of say, okay, I'll let you back. I won't wipe you out. No, he's saying, I have something really good for you, despite how unworthy you have been. My love for you, he's saying, is not dependent on who you've been or what you've done, my love for you is dependent on who I am. And so he says this, verses 6-8. through In that day, declares the Lord, the covenant God, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. What's coming in the short term for them because of their sin? God's going to cripple them. God's going to drive them away from their promised land into exile. God Himself is going to afflict them. And that might seem harsh, but that's good because they've been engaging in great evil. A God who does nothing about evil is no good God. And so God is saying, I'm going to cripple you. I'm going to drive you away. I'm going to afflict you in the short term. But that's not the end. I will assemble the lame. I'll gather back those who have been driven away. I will gather back those whom I have afflicted and the lame I will make the remnant. Those who were cast off, not just a nation, but a strong nation, verse 7. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. You see the great love and mercy of God. God is not just some grandfather God who doesn't care what we do or doesn't care what happens to the weak or to the poor or to the vulnerable. He's not a God who just writes us a blank check as though it doesn't matter how we live. If He was, He wouldn't be a good God. But he's also not the caricature of a hanging judge God who's just waiting to wipe us out as soon as we mess something up. He loves us, and he cares for his people, and he has a bright future ahead for his people, even as he disciplines his people. And so we read that he will reign over them in Mount Zion as long as they're good, verse 7. No. As long as they keep doing what's right. No. From this time forth and forevermore. God is faithful to them, even when they're unfaithful. God is faithful to us, even when we're unfaithful. God's mercy flows out of His character, not out of something we deserve. And His mercy is our hope. His grace is our hope. Because if it's up to us, we deserve nothing but God's judgment. And so this should shatter any pride that we have as God's people, thinking that we sort of do good things and get God to do what we want or that we're all that, that we have reason to boast or to be proud. Our only hope is God's mercy. And yet, thanks be to God that he is merciful, that he is good and that he is so loving that he doesn't just sort of refrain from pouring out his judgment on us, but that he actually does good for us, that he reigns in righteousness and justice, that he will bring perfect peace and perfect blessing to us. And he does so through his kingship. This is where the passage lands in verse 8. You, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, the capital city, to you shall it come. The former dominion, that means kingdom, shall come. So what's going to happen in the short term? Their kings are going to be defeated. Their capital city is going to be destroyed. The kings are going to be taken off into exile. It's going to, They're going to be the laughingstock on the world stage. And it's going to seem like any blessing, any kingdom, any kingship is gone from God's people. But God says that's not how it's always going to be. The former kingship that's going to be defeated, it'll come back. There will be kingship. And who's the king going to be? God. Specifically, Jesus Christ, God the Son, who will reign in justice and in perfect righteousness forever and ever. That's what I believe this whole passage is pointing us to is to Jesus. Now it's not explicit in Micah chapter four, but we'll see next week uh, prophecies about a king who's going to come and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. How many of you have heard of Bethlehem if you've been in the church? Who who gets born in Bethlehem? What king gets born in Bethlehem? Jesus, right? So all of this is pointing forward to kingship through Jesus. And it's through Jesus that God addresses all these problems among his people, and secures this future hope for his people. God's people then, and we God's people now, sin against God. And so there's a penalty, a death penalty that we deserve. But Jesus Christ, God the Son, came in the flesh to pay the penalty for our sin, that we might be reconciled to God, that he and his good justice might not wipe us out. Jesus also dealt with the power of sin, and his death, We who are united with him in his death die to the power of sin. He rose to new life, and through his life we are empowered to live lives of righteousness. He ascended to the right hand of the Father where he has poured out the Spirit that we might live in ways they were never able to live in Micah's day. And yet, as good as all that stuff is, we're still waiting for the day when there's no more defense budgets, aren't we? We're still waiting for the day when there's no more injustice, when the powerful don't take advantage of the weak, when the rich don't take advantage of the poor. We're still waiting for what's being described in Micah chapter four. And I believe that what's being spoken of here is a reference to first and foremost, when Jesus Christ returns. See, we live in this already not yet part of history. Already Jesus has come. He's paid the penalty for our sin. He's broken the power of sin. And yet there's still a not yet. We're still waiting for when He returns. And when He returns, He will establish righteousness and justice throughout the whole earth. I believe that's what's spoken of here in Micah 4. What's spoken of in Revelation 20 is the millennial kingdom of God. And so there will be a day when Jesus returns and He does rule in righteousness and justice from Jerusalem. And as good as that will be, it will be even better after the final judgment, a judgment that we can only withstand because Jesus has died for us, when we will dwell with God under his good and gracious rule in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens and the new earth for ever and ever. In that day we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, the Lord will reign over us forever and ever. And in that day, there will be no more sorrow. There will be no more pain. There will be no more injustice. It will be perfect, perfect blessing brought about by Jesus. And in that day, God will be our God. We will be his people in his place under his gracious rule. And this should lead us to worship to give thanks to a God that is merciful to us, a God who could have wiped us out. If God is just the hanging judge sort of God, why would he come in the flesh in the person of Jesus for our salvation? If God was not a just God, why would he even bother in the person of Jesus coming and dying on the cross? He is a good God. He is just. And so we need the cross. But He is also merciful, which is also shown to us in the cross. And so all of this secures for us a bright and future hope, not because we've been good, not because we've earned it, not because we're all that, but because God is who he is. And in that final day, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will hear this voice from God. Revelation 21.3, John writes this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, God, will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Our God is faithful to the very end. There will be no end to his faithfulness. He is gracious and merciful. Let us give him praise. Let us hope in that, and let us remember in all of this that it is because of his mercy. Let that lead us to love him. Let that lead us to follow him. Let that lead us to give everything we have for him because he is good. He is our hope. He is our God. We are his people and will be with him forever. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, we confess that in Micah's day and in our own, so often we, your people, fail to live rightly before you. And we give thanks that you are a good God who will deal with all that is wrong in your world, and yet we confess that we're part of the problem too. We know, O Lord, that if you kept a record of sins, who could stand before you? And yet we thank you that you are a merciful God. We thank you that you are just, but we thank you that you are also merciful, and that though we have sinned, you have a great future ahead for us. Lord, we do not deserve this. It only comes to us through your merciful love. And so we give you thanks. We ask that you would help us to live lives of gratitude for that mercy for now and forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our crucified, risen, and ascended Lord, and soon to return. Amen.